So this morning, we are coming to a close, not only of a sermon series on parables that we've been doing for the last eight weeks, we're also coming to a close on something that we've kind of called like a year of Jesus. Now, I know it's church. So that means we should never quit talking about Jesus. Hopefully, before a year ago, we were talking about Jesus. But our desire for the last year, since the beginning of last July, is to have like an uncut, unfiltered, unadulterated, it sounds like an MTV, like 90s TV show, but like unplugged, that's the word, unplugged, but to have something that really looks at Jesus directly and doesn't try to mince his words. So many times we have tried to use Paul or others to translate Jesus. It's like poor old Jesus couldn't speak for himself. We had to have somebody bring in some good systematic theology so we could understand it better. And that's not wrong, but also like we can just look at Jesus, go like, what do you have to say to us? And let it penetrate us and mess with us. And that's what we've been trying to do for this last year. And I've heard from several of you how much this has messed with you. Like the, the uneasiness almost of like, oh my gosh, what is Jesus going to say to us this week? Like, what are we going to read this week? And in many ways, we've kind of saved the best for last, right? Because you read this passage and there ain't no way we're walking away from here going, well, that was a really sweet message from Jesus. Like, I'm either going to obey him or I'm going to be cut to pieces and beaten down by Jesus, right? Like that's, you know, like amen, sermon's over, go home. Like, no, there's something more here. Because this passage is trying to tell us that, that we need to be ready. And what does it mean for us to be ready? What does it mean for us, and you'll see in a moment, to be able to wait and watch well? So that's what I want us to do. I want us to first just kind of look at what this passage is trying to communicate to us. But then let's actually consider, like, how are we going to, like, use this? Like, how are we going to walk away from this and apply it to our our everyday life starting tomorrow. So first, though, let's just kind of jump in to the context. Jesus, as usual, is picking fights with religious people. He couldn't help himself. Whenever he saw a, a Pharisee or scribe, he's like, well, I guess it's on, right? Like he just had to kind of go pick a fight. He couldn't, it was so impulsive for him because he realized that the religious elite at the time were we're creating hierarchies and in turn, we're making the Bible into a way to earn God's favor, right? Some kind of caste system almost. And there are all these people at the bottom who never could get out of their, their ruts. And Jesus came on the scene. Like, you know, it's really interesting when Jesus comes on the scene, we read this beginning in July last year, the Beatitude series, like Jesus shows up after his, uh, his reading of the scroll and he's been baptized and ready to go and he's ready to pick his fantasy football team, right? Work with me on this. He's ready to kind of pick his team. Like here's the people on my team I want. And he doesn't pick like the best quarterback or the best receiver or whatever else. The first, he's, he's on the draft board, number one pick, and his first pick is poor people. Who do you want on your team? I want poor people on my team. Okay, well, that's weird, Jesus. Okay, now you get a second pick. Make it good. Okay, I want whiners on my team. Okay, and then the list goes on and on. Like, he's after the people at the bottom of society, not the people at the top of society, because he wants to communicate his kingdom is about greater values than that. So he's always after the religious elite at the time. He can't stand it. He, he, it's not that he can't stand the people. He can't stand what they stand for. 
And then it says, beginning of chapter 12 in Luke, that there were thousands and thousands of people who were following him. So many people, they were trampling over themselves, trying to get near him, right? So all these thousands of people. And then there would be like, if you, listen, it's not like people were just kind of sitting in this huge place and then just like, like being quiet. No, like they were out in the open, thousands of people all around. People are losing their minds, all right? This isn't, this isn't like order, okay? This is like a bunch of teenage girls at a Bieber show, all right? Like they're just all losing their mind and like we got to get near. So, so he has random conversations and like one person walks up to him and it's like, my brother won't share the inheritance with me. He's stingy and greedy. Tell him to give it up. Tell him to give me some of what, what I'm owed. So then Jesus, like out of nowhere, starts going into this whole bit about greed and about how like your anxiety will push you to demand and take instead of trust and wait for the Lord to bring what is yours. But then he kind of like, and this Jesus always does this, he goes to another level Like he never can just kind of stay sane and like, okay, that's interesting. Let's kind of stay on this level. He'll just kind of ramp it up. And all of a sudden he says to them, be ready. Be ready and keep your lamps filled with oil. And we're going, what is happening? So let's just jump into that. Let's look here. It says in verse 35, be dressed, ready for service and keep your lamps burning. So let's just kind of break this down. Now, but as, as we're considering this passage, this parable, Jesus, when he talks about the master, he's talking about the owner of a home, owner of a big estate. And when he says servant, you have to keep in mind, it wasn't servants in the ways that we think of like slavery here in America. It was that people were looking for work 2,000 years ago. What they would do is they would sign a contract, and for seven years, they would be this uh, bond servant to whoever was very wealthy, okay? And so it's still slavery, but it's not the same way. And so these bond servants could become stewards. You would call them the steward of the house. So here's what we have. We have this master and this owner of an estate and this steward of a house. And he's saying, be dressed and ready for service. Now, I was reading this going you know, so many times in translations of Scripture, especially modern like NIV, ESV, we can kind of lose some of the originalness of what it was trying to, to say, the earthiness. This is one of the only times you'll ever hear me quote the King James, all right? But I'm about to give it to you because I think King James, it never gets it right except now. All right, so if you read King James, catch up. All right, so it says, let your loins be girded about. And now we all say, what the heck does that mean? Because it sounds kind of edgy to me, all right? So I was, I think the best way to talk about it is to show you a picture, okay? So um, here we go. This is a guide to how to gird your loins. Now, first, let's just recognize uh, this person looks like a WWE wrestler. Am I right? All right? And second, I realized this is what I would look like if I ever quit my job to try to become, to try and go become a wrestler. And then just, and then I started thinking, if I quit my job to go become a wrestler, what would my name be? Holy Moses, all right? And what would my finishing move be? The Red Sea Smash, of course, all right? So, but here we go, all right. 
I digress. Here we go. So here's how you gird up your loins, because Middle Eastern men wore long garments, all right? And it was because you got, like, it's not like, like, mm, I'll wear the blue one today, and I'll, I'll do the white one today. It wasn't that. It was like, I just kind of have what I have. And you, it would be cold at night, so you need it long to keep you warm. But like, during the day, you got to get work done. So this kind of gives you instructions here, like you pull it up, it looks a little edgy in the second one, right? But then you kind of like move it forward, and then you wrap it around, and it says in the fourth box, this feels much like a diaper, okay? And then you swing it around, and you tie it together, and then it says in, in box six, finally, tie your two handfuls of material together, and you're all set for both battle and some hard labor. Go forth, be ye men, and gird up your loins, all right? So that's what it means to, to gird up some loins. All right. So here's what he's saying. Be ready. Gird up your loins. Be prepared because something's about to go down. And you could miss out and you could not be ready for the action. Like there's a chance you'll miss out on the action and that you need to participate. So he's saying to them, gird up your loins now, here's the other thing, though. Why would he pull from this passage? It's really interesting. Like, why would he say it this way, gird up your loins? The first time you hear this, and if you were a good ancient Near Eastern Jewish man, woman, or child, when he said, gird up your loins, you'd immediately be taken back to Exodus chapter 12. Now, what happens in Exodus? Let me show you. Exodus chapter 12, verse 11. It says, and thus shall you eat. Again, King James just nails it here, right? So, and thus shall ye eat it, and with your loins girded, your shoes on your feet, and your staff in your hand, and ye shall eat it in haste, it is the Lord's Passover. Whenever you see, and, and Peter does this in First Peter, he'll use this idea of gird up your loins. What he's saying is, be ready for the big event. Now, what was the Passover? The Passover was the initiation to the Exodus. It was the freedom of people from slavery. It was the single greatest act in the history of Jewish lore, of like their whole history together. This was it. And it would bring like, it would conjure up something like, yes, because what's coming next is we're going to be rescued out of slavery and go out to the desert and go like start this new world, this new life together. Jesus purposefully is trying to connect the dots to one day he's going to come back and you need to be ready, just like God's people in Exodus needed to be ready that one day the king was going to come. Now, Jesus is talking this kind of futuristic way. He's implying that he won't always be with them. And when he leaves, there's going to be like some implications to this. They're going to want to live certain ways. But he's trying to encourage them, like, when I'm gone from you, you're going to need to live with such intentionality to gird up your loins. And then it says here next, not only to gird up your loins, be ready with anticipation. Next it says, and keep your lamps burning. Keep your lamps burning. Mother Teresa famously said, to keep a lamp burning, we have to keep putting oil in it. You can say like, well, of course, uh, Mother Teresa, thank you for that inspiration. But just sit with that for a second. Because there's an assumption that just the lamp's going to keep on burning. That what you have in you now is enough for the journey. And what Jesus is saying is, nope, 
like you don't have enough right now. You're going to need more. If you don't make enough deposits that when the world, world comes and makes withdrawals, you will eventually run dry and you will go bankrupt. He's giving us a warning. Don't sit on your laurels. Don't assume that you have enough in you. You're always trying to put more oil so the lamp can keep burning. Be intentional. Be on the lookout. Be ready. So what does this idea of them being ready, loins girded, and then also like keeping the lamp burning. How could we like understand this a little more simply? I think it happens in the next few verses. Look at verse 36. Like servants waiting, waiting for their master to return from a wedding banquet so that when he comes and knocks, they can immediately open the door for him. It will be good for those servants whose master finds them watching when he comes even if he comes in the middle of the night toward daybreak. Jesus is telling these thousands and thousands of people, you have to wait and watch well. Wait and watch well, because you'll tend to do one without the other. We tend to wait, but then not really be watchful. We tend to kind of sit maybe, and we'll find out here in a second, like camp on something, just assume something, but not really be active because watchfulness is someone holding a lamp because it's pitch black and saying, is that him? Is that him? Okay, let's be, let's be intentional here. Let's be vigilant. Is that him? Is he coming? Okay. Like they're ready. They're ready for action. They're not sitting back and going, well, maybe one day the king will return, the master of the house will return, and it'll be fine. It'll all just work out because, you know what, like, que sera, sera, and there you go. No, he's actually saying, like, you've better be intentional. Now, on top of that, not only with this passage of saying, which remember something, Luke is writing this probably somewhere between 70 and 80 AD. Which means you would have already had the insanity and emotional, mental breakdown of Nero. You would have had the initiation of Christians being burned alive. You would have had the initiation of this national bigotry and xenophobia towards Christianity. That's where it was at the time. And so more and more, all these people, these Christians, these minorities are going this is getting hard. This is getting really hard. Is the, is the king going to come back? Like Jesus, I know he just left us a few years ago, but like, is he going to come back soon? We're ready for him to come back. They were in desperate need. And Luke is trying to communicate something by writing this at that time. He's saying, it's going to happen, but not when you want it. You're going to have to wait longer than you want. Have you ever had to wait longer than you wanted? Have you ever had to like wait on God to show up and you keep going like surely this, surely by now it'll happen. Surely by now he'll come. And then you find yourself realizing like Superman ain't coming. Like you're going to have to walk through it yourself. It's going to be harder than you assumed. Maybe more traumatic than you ever wanted it to be. You have to wait. In your bulletin, C.S. Lewis spoke to this. He said, I do not know why 
there is this difference, but I am sure that God keeps no one waiting unless he sees that it is good for him to wait. When you do enter your room, you will find that the long wait has done you some kind of good, which you would not have had otherwise. But you must regard it as waiting, not as camping. You must keep on praying for light. And of course, even in the hall, you must begin trying to obey the rules which are common to the whole house. And above all, you must be asking which door is the true one, not which pleases you best by its paint and paneling. I think some of us, including me, as I was thinking about that this week, I confuse waiting with camping. Everybody, anybody go camping growing up or even like do camping now? Like you can do that as adults. So that's weird. Um, so growing up, I grew up out in the country in Mississippi, but like to get away from the country, like all the stars in the sky, my grandparents would take an RV and then go deeper into the country and we would go camping. And so that's like, yay, vacation for a 10-year-old growing up was going camping. And if you've never been camping and you're 10, it's horrible, all right? Like, because you have nothing to do except just to like sit there. That's what my, and, and I'm sure some of you actually really enjoy, like maybe you go out and you go camping like in dangerous places and like chase bears and have them chase you back. I don't know. My family would just go camp set up lawn chairs and sit there all day and do nothing and then make us go with them. So that was camping for me. Uh, it was like waiting without like doing something. It, it was waiting without like watching, like being intentional with something. And I think a lot of us get caught up in these moments of waiting without watching. That we, we say, yeah, we're ready, but we're not really intentional here in the moment. So really, we're just passive. And then that kind of crystallizes and becomes apathy. And we find ourselves not really jumping into the flow and, of life and trying to bring more shalom. We just kind of go passively go, oh, it'll happen when it needs to happen. And then the lamp runs dry because we're not investing. We're not pouring ourselves out. We're not letting it be poured in. And I think there's a few reasons why this happens for us. Because our tendency is to become neutral. You know what I mean when I say that? Like our tendency and when we camp, when we wait without watching, is we become neutral. We just kind of go, yeah, whatever. I'll just kind of go with whatever. It's not that big a deal. It'll all pass. Yeah, I know this is happening in the government, but not that big a deal. I'm sure it'll all work out just fine. So we become passive. Sit on it. I think there's a few reasons why we do that. One, I, I think that we become neutral, passive, waiting without watching because like life is just really, really hard. It beats us down. We get beat down by life. And we all have our own story to that your own situation you've had to go through, where you were waiting so vigilantly for the Lord to show up in your life, and eventually he didn't, Superman didn't show up, and everything, like, turned out really, really bad. And you get this attitude like, okay, well, fool me once, shame on you, but fool me twice, 
I ain't gonna be ashamed no more, you know, as, as maybe W would say. So like, this isn't gonna happen to me again. But yet, as we were even singing earlier, we're meant to wait and have hope. And when you wait without hope, my goodness, what a sad existence. To live without hope, it's like, it's against, it's antithetical to our humanity. So I think that's one, that's a big one. I think as well, we end up having a crippling eschatology. Big word, eschatology. Eschatology simply means like how it's all going to go down. All right? That's like the breakdown. How's, how's this going to go down? Eschatology. There you go. Welcome to seminary. So it's like the end times you've, been heard, you've heard it called, like, like trying to predict the future, Nostradamus style. There's this thing that's floated around. It's only about two or 300 years old. Matter of fact, if you would have said this stuff 1,500 years ago, people would have scratched their heads. It's called the rapture. Anybody ever grew up with this, right? And I don't, I don't, I don't want to be at a, at a, I don't want to shame you. That's not my, my goal on this. But I want you to know if you buy into that, that's actually not biblical traditionally. Traditionally. Maybe somebody thought up something new that everybody else missed 1,500 years ago in the last 100 years. But I'm just letting you know, when you look at tradition, that wasn't how, like, Christians rolled. They didn't think in terms that one day they'll be body snatched, right? Like, Thanos is going to win. You should have watched the movie by now. So it's not like there's going to be body snatched, right? And like things like disappear. Like I used to think that I used to be so afraid growing up. Like one of these days I'm going to be driving and all of a sudden I'll disappear out of my car and the car will wreck and people will die around me, but I'll be in heaven. You know, like that was my thought. <laughs> um, no, like our eschatology so many times is we're looking to get out of this world, not double down in this world. But the Bible isn't about you getting out of this world. The Bible is about you doubling down on this world. See, if you live with a mindset that one of these days you'll get out of here and you'll get to Beulah land, wear a robe, sing in front of a glassy sea, whatever that is, like if that's how you're living, then yeah, you're kind of done here. And you will end up being passive and you will end up camping and being neutral because it's all about getting out of here because the world's going to burn up in a handbasket. But that's not scripture. It's certainly not tradition of how people have looked at it. And here's what I would say is to be to that, like the second part of two. I think that we end up having an overinflated responsibility to witness. I don't think it's your job to get somebody else, somebody else saved. I really don't because like the Bible's not that into you trying to do that. That's called the Holy Spirit's job. Your job is not even to live some kind of amazing life that all of all the other people kind of fall to their knees they are so inspired and want to worship Jesus. Your life is to be a human being who's following their Lord and doing the best they know how to do with what they have to work with. That's it. Be humble, be faithful, stay in your lane, bro, right? Like, that's it. And if others want to join in on that, they'll join in on it. But when there's such a hypervigilance that we have to go reach the world and let them all come to know Jesus, at some point that gets really wearing. Because if that's all you have to live for, what you'll do is you'll disregard someone's humanity. You'll just think about just getting souls saved. You just think of a soul saved. That's not wrong, just so you know. But that's like not your job. 
Again, that's about a two to 300 year old idea in the church. Not something traditionally people would have thought about. So I think these things beat down on us. And I think what we find is, is that like, it's just too much. It's too much. Because verse 40, he tells us, you also must be ready because the son of man will come in an hour when you do not expect him. Be ready, anticipate, don't camp out. So then what happens when we do? Like, if here's what he's saying, like, don't camp out, anticipate, be engaged, be ready, loins girded, let's do this thing. Keep your lamps filled with oil. What happens when we don't do that? Now, here's what I love about this passage most of all. I love Peter. I feel like Peter is my biblical analog, right? What I mean, like someone that you kind of look at and go, that's me right there. He nails it. Like, here's Peter's philosophy. Um, I'm, I may not hit the bullseye, but I, at least I'll be on the bell of hay, hopefully, right? Like, that's kind of his thing. It's like fire, aim, ready. That's, that's, that's Peter regularly. And I'm like, amen, I relate, all right? So, like, hopefully you'll get three out of four things this morning that are true, and if you hear something untrue, just disregard it. Like, that's kind of how I approach preaching. I'm joking. So, <laughs> I think I am. Um, so here's what Peter asked in verse 41. Lord, are you telling this parable to us or to everyone? <laughs> I, like, I, I, there's something implied there. I don't want to read into it too much, but he's almost like going, just between us, this is for them, right? Because we're, we're, we're simpatico. Like, we're here together. Like, we're on the same page, right? And you almost kind of see Jesus, like, looking at him and just, I kind of imagine just kind of grinning and going, and now let me tell you who this is really for. And here's what Jesus says. Who then is the faithful and wise manager whom the master puts in charge of his servants to give them their food allowance at the proper time? Their food allowance at the proper time. We're talking about someone who's a good steward. See, Jesus is upping the ante. He's not just saying, be a servant ready to go. He's now saying, like, be a good steward. Be a faithful manager. Be someone who is um, thoughtful and looks after those around them and make sure that they get their food at the proper time. They're looking out for others. Now, this is really interesting because he's saying, he goes on, like those who wait and watch well and those who don't wait and watch well. Like those who are a faithful and wise manager and steward of what the Lord's given them than those who aren't. Here's what he says to those who are. Verse 43. Blessed is that servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. Truly I say to you, he will set him over all his possessions. We don't like to always think about it this way. I don't know why. But when Jesus the king returns one day, if you've been a faithful and good steward, here's what it's telling us. He's going to give you stuff. Doesn't that sound weird? Like Jesus is going to give you stuff. I don't mean like lots of little jewels in your crown. I don't know what, I don't know what he's going to give you. But here's the thing. When he returns one day, and when he returns, I don't mean like you getting to heaven. I mean the renewal of this whole world. Revelation 21. Resurrection of bodies. 
When he returns and he finds those who were faithful and wise managers and stewards of this world, he gives you stuff. I don't know, I don't know what this stuff is, but like if it's from like God, I think it's going to be pretty good, right? Like I, don't, I think it's going to be pretty decent. Like he actually wants you getting stuff to be a motivation for you living well. That sounds weird. He wants the anticipation of what you'll get in the new heavens and new earth. I don't mean like standing around worshiping, you know, you'll get like a better like soprano voice or something. I mean like he's wanting to like give you stuff because when he comes back, we're going to be like building this world and do it even to be even better. His vision for this world is for it to be beautiful and grand, to keep evolving, for us to like live in it and love it. You're not getting out of this world, y'all. He wants you here. You may die, but when you resurrect, you're here. He wants to give you stuff. But then he says to those who don't, look at this, to those who don't, but if that servant says to himself, my master is delayed in coming and begins to beat the male and female servants and to eat and drink and get drunk. Vivid. Like that just took a swerve. (laughs) You went from being a good steward to now like, I'm just going to beat people. And I don't mean to make light of that because that's real. Like that conjures up something today. Like someone who was supposed to be a safe presence for others and look after them ends up beating them. Not a good steward. Not looking after others. The thing that these stewards are called to do to make sure that others get their food at the proper time. They're like, they're like taking that and turning it on itself for their own means, turning it inward. He's saying, this person right here, this person who does that, I'm going to sever them. It's really hard to know exactly what all he's saying there. I want you to keep this in mind. Um, For an ancient Eastern Jewish person, hell wasn't nearly as developed and nuanced as we have today. Like they kind of like, okay, hell, but like not like how we talk about hell. For them, they would use the word Gehenna, and like this word Gehenna was the trash heap outside of Jerusalem, and the trash heap is where you put all the scraps. So Jesus, a lot of times, the place for the unfaithful, the unbelievers would be Gehenna, meaning the place of Gehenna is for those who are useless with their humanity Now, I'm not going to get into all that with you. If you want to talk sidebar, we can. This isn't the time, though, about hell, heaven, all that kind of stuff. I get it. Those are kind of big ideas. I'm not here to erase anything. I'm just here to say Jesus is trying to use more hyperbole here. It's idiomatic. He's trying to, like, conjure something. It's shocking. It's a bunch of words put together that don't, with those words, equal the sum of those words. He's trying to say something. If you aren't a good steward with your life, if you don't look after others and only for yourself, you are useless with your humanity. And you might as well be cut to pieces because you forfeited the Imago Dei in you and to honor the Imago Dei in others. That's heavy. That like confronts you. But we have to look at that and consider that. Because he's not just condoning evil. He's he's not just saying evil is bad. He's also condemning a lack of good. You hear that? 
There's a difference. He's not just like condemning evil, of course evil. He's condemning a lack of good. Dr. King said, for evil to succeed, all it needs is for good men to do nothing. For evil to succeed, all it takes is for good men to do nothing. When you and I decide to live neutral, we are doing evil instead of pursuing good. When you and I are simply just consumed with taking care of ourselves, but never looking out for those around us, because here's who he's talking to. He's talking to the church. He's talking to Peter and the disciples, the people who will build the church and and help flesh this thing out in the world. He's saying to them, if you are good stewards of this, you're useless. My church will be useless and it will be more abusive than it is healing. And friends, we have found ourselves there, haven't we? We found ourselves there with all the church two scandals, not just the me too, the church two scandals, where there are women who have been abused and suppressed in the church by a machismo-like place, abuse of power. But it's not just from men to women. It's all of us to those who have dealt with slavery. The church was a huge force behind condoning that. The white church was the last just to like open their eyes to it in America. Think about it, Bible verses, ideas in scripture used to keep that going. Even, even Hitler himself would pull back and use Martin Luther, the great reformer, and part of Luther's racism and bigotry towards Jews to fuel the fire for Germans in the Holocaust. The church has has constantly failed, right, at taking care of those who are in need, of making sure they get their food at the proper time. Why? Because when good people stay neutral and don't engage with the evil of their day and say, no, that's not okay, and this is when this person eats, and I'm going to be a good steward for this person, when they're not waiting and watching well, we're useless. And Jesus is saying, listen, yo, I don't even know when I'm coming back. Only the Father knows that. Here's what I know. When I come back and I usher in a new heavens, new earth, will I find you as someone who was waiting and watching or someone who was just camping out? So where do you find yourself? Are you waiting simply? Or is there a readiness to you? Is it simply looking after your own needs or is it scanning the horizon saying, How do I help feed others and care for them? How do I engage in the needs of those who can't do that for themselves? Because he says in verse 48, everyone to whom much was given, of him much will be required. And from him to whom they entrusted much, they will demand the more. Dwight Pentecost um, Uh, a scholar and writer, he goes, privilege brings responsibility and that responsibility entails accountability. We are a privileged people and that's okay. 
The question is, how will we use our privilege? This is the message of Jesus, not me. And we see him bring this up time and time again. How will you use your privilege? Will it be to care for those around you, or will it be just to self-serve? Because if it's a self-serve, you'll end up waiting without watching and end up being neutral. Now, here's what I want to encourage you with. I see this church learning how to wait and watch well and not just wait. I don't think of us as a neutral church. I think of us as a church willing to engage what is difficult. And I want to encourage you with that. I see that. I think in so many ways, this message is preaching to the choir. But also know this. I know how easy it is to become neutral. And I want you to understand that moving forward, this church, we're going to have to like take on more and more things that are uncomfortable. Take on more and more things that are uncomfortable. I'm I'm not even trying to tell you what all those things are. I just mean when we see something that's not right, we have to engage it. And I'll give you an example. What we've seen happen at the border between the United States and Mexico. This is not about a red or a blue argument, trust me. This is simply about a biblical mandate. That as Christians, we are called to welcome sojourners. We are called to be a place where those who are traveling and weary, running from injustice, can find a place of respite and peace. And what's so sad is so many who would want to say it is right and okay for what's happened at the border are the same that would say, but we need to go witness to people in those countries and get them saved. And I'm thinking, do we see the disconnect there? Because there is one. I'm not pulling you from one side to another, trust me. I'm not talking down about any leader. But as much as the Bible says in two or three places, don't talk bad against leaders, hundreds of places it says, welcome the sojourner. Christians, friends, these are just part of our, our plight, making sure people get their meals at the right time, waiting and watching well. So this week, we sent out an email. If you're not on our email list, you can sign up and, and do that. But on the email, we actually... Um, gave a prayer, because, and I know, I know a bill's been signed. I also know there's going to be a delay before families are reunited, okay? And I also know, like, it's just horrific. I can't, I can't even imagine my four-year-old daughter being separated from me with strangers and living in that space in between. And I know we can't all run down there, but maybe we can even pray and join in solidarity. Maybe we can be more aware with where we are. So we can be better stewards and managers of what God's given us. So there was a prayer that we put in this email, and we put it on the screen. So I'm going to ask you to stand with me. And to end our sermon, we're going to practice what, we, what we've read here by together joining this prayer, like all of our voices together, joining this prayer. And then after that, we're going to take communion because the Lord knows we need his presence here with us. Say it with me. Almighty and merciful God, whose son became a refugee and had no place to call his own, look with mercy on those today who are fleeing from danger, homeless and hungry. Bless those who work to bring them relief. Inspire generosity and compassion in all our hearts and guide the nations of the world towards that day when all will rejoice in your kingdom of justice and of peace. 
through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.